I'm Kaya. And I'm Briani. And so for our Canon Today podcast, we decided to really examine Columbus's letter written to the King and Queen of Spain in 1493, which entails his quote-unquote discovery of the New World. And so we specifically chose this text because of the pervasiveness and power of the colonial gaze and Eurocentrism in just everyday life and in culture, especially in the medium of film, which is something that we really wanted to specifically explore because media is something that is not only consumed by so many people, but is oftentimes the dominant way in which we make sense of the world through what we see, through what we listen to. And so in our discussions with Professor Francis Negron Muntaner, we also wanted to explore the colonial gaze in film, but what it means to decolonize that gaze as a filmmaker um, in her case, but also for those of us as spectators and just everyday human beings, how do we decolonize our own gaze, decolonize our way of thinking? In order to discuss the colonial gaze, Eurocentric gaze, we really have to examine what the gaze actually means. And so because the medium that we are discussing is film, the gaze is actually a term coined by film theorist and critic Laura Mulvey in her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. And that is the definition through which we will be discussing the colonial gaze. And so the gaze is basically a term that describes how viewers engage with visual media. So for those of us that are watching movies as viewers, we're made to identify with the protagonist slash the gazer, right? Because the camera supposedly mimics the protagonist's eyes. Usually that protagonist is a straight white man. So we view others, other characters, other things on the screen through his eyes. And so Mulvey argues that because we are viewing things through the POV of a man, a woman, any other object becomes passive because of sexual imbalance in our world, because of the patriarchy, right? And so Mulvey says that, quote, by imposing them on the silent image of women still tied to her place as bearer of meaning, not maker of meaning. In a world ordered by sexual imbalance, pleasure and looking has been split between active male and passive female, unquote. And so using the terms active and passive, it's important to recognize that the gaze renders the object or person being gazed at as passive. So groups like women, BIPOC, and others are rendered through this gaze. They are to be looked upon and their meaning comes from being looked at. So if we are being associated with the male protagonist, we project onto them what he sees right so how does this all relate to columbus well in columbus's letter he does the looking he controls the gaze the indigenous people become part of the surroundings they're mere background props in this magical new world that he has self-proclaimed that he's discovered and is taking this glory for himself he makes their meaning calling them timid creating this idea of the noble savage because we read about this quote-unquote discovery of America from Columbus's perspective, we're forced to identify with him. Or rather, just merely living in the United States, like that is the origin story that this country is claiming. And that is the history of this country. And this country claims not the perspective of the indigenous people, but it 
Columbus's perspective and it identifies with him. And so we were really curious about seeing how this colonial gaze extends to Eurocentrism, the imperial or colonial gaze, especially in a film, because it's very clear in watching movies how how these characters or groups of people are portrayed in a media, how that reflects and enforces how they are treated and perceived in real life. A great example is how in movies, you know, if you've seen The Blind Side, black characters are made less threatening by whites either through white domestication of black culture or by putting them in stories where they play by rules of white society and lose or where white people have to save them. So when I mention The Blind Side, I'm saying how this, you know, quote-unquote poor, like, helpless kid has to be saved by this, like, benevolent great white woman. And Hollywood loves those movies. Like, we have seen that time and time again. Like, white savior movies are popular in the Hollywood circle. They are things that reinforce stereotypes about black people. And, you know, this applies to not just black people, but indigenous people, Latinx people, Asian people, um, non-able-bodied persons, women. These gazes, these ways in which these people are perceived reinforce but also reflect how they are perceived and viewed by greater society outside of the films and the media that we are consuming and so that's really what we want to get into and is one of the many things that we discussed with professor francis negron montaner um so for our kinder today podcast we decided to interview professor francis negron montaner francis is a professor at columbia university um teaching both English and comparative literature, as well as directing the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. Frances also teaches classes in Caesar, um, and she has contributed to the Huffington Post, El Diario, and 80 Grados, and has served as a global expert for the United Nations Rapid Response Media Mechanism. Um, Frances was born in Puerto Rico and is a filmmaker, writer, and scholar. Um, her most notable work is Brincando el Charco, or Portrait of a Puerto Rican. We decided to interview Professor Negro Montanier because a lot of her work tackles visibility and um, visibility within a specific culture. In Columbus's letters, he paints the native people that he interacts with as a part of the background rather than actual people with their own lives, um, which is something that'll be touched on later in the podcast. But we thought a lot about the way that Columbus interacted with people that did not align with his like worldview. And we wanted to talk about colonization and the thought of decolonialism and how to portray how to portray decolonialism in different works of media, including writing, literature, film, all of the above. We decided to focus on film because it's one of the most accessible ways of learning rather than having to have access to a book or having to have a certain reading level or reading in a certain language. So films are very accessible, which is why we decided to focus on this. Um, we also wanted to focus on the concept of putting yourselves in someone else's shoes before arguing or before just dismissing the other person which we also saw in Columbus's letters. Um, 
Professor Negro Montanier's work addresses coloniality and post-colonialism, especially in Brincando El Charco, um, which shows how relevant it was at the time when she produced these works and also today, because film is relevant regardless of the time it was created. Um, Finally, we wanted to talk about decolonial joy and surrounding yourself with those who support and love you, but also critique you fairly. Um, The concept of decolonial joy is something that at least I hadn't heard of until very recently, and Professor Negro Montanier goes very into depth about what decolonial joy is and how we can recognize that, Um, and I'll leave it to her to explain it. Um, Our first question was really just if you could say your name, um, your role, and then your pronouns. My role? Role, I guess, like, at Columbia, but I guess how you would describe yourself. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, my name is Frances Negro Montaner. I'm a professor at Columbia University. We're also the, the founding curator of the Latino Arts and Activism Collection at Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And uh, I teach both at the Department of English and Comparative Literature and at the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. And you said pronouns. Uh, I, I, whatever. <laughs> I'm not that particular about that. Thank you. I guess I can ask like the next question, which is just how would you um, describe your body of work from your research to your films? Well, I think the first characteristic is that I work in different forms. So I tend to describe myself as a multimodal thinker and doer. And uh, if you look at my body of work, you'll see that it has roughly three threads, um, scholarship, uh, archive-based scholarship, uh, mostly about the Caribbean, the Caribbean diaspora, uh, US Latinos, um, popular culture, visual studies. So I'm also a practicing filmmaker and I also produce public scholarship about different topics. Um, media representation is one of them, uh, but also uh, questions of colonial um, colonialism in the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world. Thank you. Um, I can take the next question. So you touched on this a bit already, but how would you describe your work as a filmmaker and an academic or a scholar? I would say the main point of my work is to disrupt colonial discourses, institutions, practices, uh, and to open up possibilities for people to live to their maximum capacity. Thank you. And I guess like in kind of that same vein of like disruption, specifically discussing film, um, I guess how would you define or like really what is the role of film um, and the arts that like what role do they play in kind of reinforcing um, ideas of colonization, I guess, on the flip side then, like decolonization? Well, for instance, I do a lot of work on visuality and counter-visuality, which is a vocabulary that you can use. Uh, So visuality meaning that, uh, for instance, racist um, categories uh, have been as much written about and and communicated through verbal language as they have been produced through visual culture. So it's actually uh, really difficult to imagine uh, the way that racialization has been produced and the way it's impacted our lives without thinking about the ways that it's become 
uh, visual and that that visuality has also been internalized by people uh, as part of their subjectivity. Um, and uh, that visuality, if you look at the um, hemispheric Americas uh, after colonization also played a huge role. Think about, for instance, the, the Casta paintings uh, that, the, that developed in order to, uh, for people to literally see what their place in the hierarchy of the society was according to their degree of deviance from white um, Spanish uh, identity and, and race. Um, so that is, uh, so obviously you could, you could say that visuality, not only film, but uh, we're talking about uh, the beginning of the colonization process where you had etchings and you had engravings and you had paintings. So you had uh, that type of visual culture um, to today, you know, digital visual culture, that, which is all around us. And, and so throughout the history of visual culture, it's been intertwined with power and it's been a site which power um, projects itself and uh, imposes the way that it, it sees the world and the place that particular groups and, and subjects are in, that, in those hierarchies. Conversely, you know, just as there is uh, colonial visuality, there's been always uh, a decolonial, anti-colonial, disruptive uh, visuality to colonialism. Um, and that sometimes it can take, it can take many forms. For instance, it can take the form of uh, minoritized people engaging with the norms of dominant visuality. So for instance, uh, if this type of visual culture is the privilege of a certain group, then when another group that's uh, supposedly not capable or cannot access it, uh, masters that form has a certain type of disruption. Uh, there's also the disruption that comes from validating, developing, and nurturing uh, autonomous visual forms, which remain minoritized uh, or, or marginalized by the dominant ones, but continues to be cultivated by these groups for purposes of the, in the colonization, both uh, at the level of the group, uh, coloniality, but at the level of larger relations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that... Um, you have both phenomena from the from the start, let's say. Um, so you have a, a visuality that comes with the colonial power and you've had challenges to that visuality that come um, from, for instance, at the moment of, of uh, invasion, uh, the, the contrast and the clash between the incoming empire and the uh, indigenous people's uh, visual cultures. Uh, and then you have these uh, complex negotiations and asymmetrical power relations between indigenous people and uh, European um, conquerors and, uh, and their apparatus uh, and so forth. So I, I would say, yeah, it's uh, central and in, it's, it's most of what I study has to do with what kind of negotiations and uh, rearticulations ha 